This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Maria Elmdang, Copenhagen, Denmark, October 2006. Dear Enemy by Jean Webster. Part 15. Thursday evening. Dear Judy, Sandy is back after ten days' absence, no explanations, and plunged deep into gloom. He resents our amiable efforts to cheer him up, and will have nothing to do with any of us except baby Allegra. He took her to his house for supper tonight, and never brought her back until half-past seven, a scandalous hour for a young miss of three. I don't know what to make of our doctor. He grows more incomprehensible every day. But Percy now is an open-minded, confiding young man. He has just been making a dinner call. He is very punctilious in all social matters. And our entire conversation was devoted to the girl in Detroit. He is lonely and likes to talk about her, and the wonderful things he says. I hope that Miss Detroit is worthy of all this fine affection, but I am afraid. He fetched out a leather case from the innermost recesses of his waistcoat, and, reverently unwrapping two layers of tissue paper, showed me the photograph of a silly little thing, all eyes and earrings and fuzzy hair. I did my best to appear congratulatory, but my heart shut up out of pity for the poor boy's future. Isn't it funny how the nicest men often choose the worst wives, and the nicest women the worst husbands? The very niceness, I suppose, makes them blind and unsuspicious. You know, the most interesting pursuit in the world is studying character. I believe I was meant to be a novelist. People fascinate me, until I know them thoroughly. Percy and the doctor form a most engaging contrast. You always know at any moment what that nice young man is thinking about. He is written like a primer in big type and one-syllable words. But the doctor? He might as well be written in Chinese as far as legibility goes. You've heard of people with a dual nature. Well, Sandy possesses a triple one. Usually he's scientific and as hard as granite, but occasionally I suspect him of being quite a sentimental person underneath his official casing. For days at a time he'll be patient and kind and helpful, and I begin to like him. Then, without any warning, an untamed wild man swells up from the innermost depths, and, oh dear, the creature's impossible. I always suspect that some time in the past he has suffered a terrible hurt, and that he is still brooding over the memory of it. All the time he is talking you have the uncomfortable feeling that in the far back corners of his mind he is thinking something else. But this may be merely my romantic interpretation of an uncommonly bad temper. In any case, he is baffling. We have been waiting for a week for a fine windy afternoon, and this is it. My children are enjoying Kite Day, a leaf taken from Japan. All of the big enough boys and most of the girls are spread over Naltop, that high, rocky sheep pasture which joins us in the east, flying kites made by themselves. I had a dreadful time coaxing the crusty old gentleman who owns the estate into granting permission. He doesn't like orphans, he says, and if he once lets them get a start in his grounds, the place will be infested with them forever. You would think, to hear him talk, that orphans were a pernicious kind of beetle. But after half an hour's persuasive talking on my part, he grudgingly made us free of his sheep pasture for two hours, provided 
we didn't step foot into the cow pasture over the lane, and came home promptly when our time was up. To ensure the sanctity of his cow pasture, Mr. Naltab has sent his gardener and chauffeur and two grooms to patrol its boundaries, while the flying is on. The children are still at it, and are having a wonderful adventure racing over that windy height and getting tangled up in one another's strings. When they come panting back, they are to have a surprise in the shape of ginger cookies and lemonade. These pitiful little youngsters with their old faces. It's a difficult task to make them young, but I believe I'm accomplishing it. And it really is fun to feel you're doing something positive for the good of the world. If I don't fight hard against it, you'll be accomplishing your purpose of turning me into a useful person. The social excitements of Worcester almost seem tame before the engrossing interest of 113 live, warm, wriggling little orphans. Yours will love, Sally. P.S. I believe, to be accurate, that it's 107 children I possess this afternoon. Dear Judy, This being Sunday, and a beautiful blossoming day, with a warm wind blowing, I sat at my window with the hygiene of the nervous system, Sandy's latest contribution to my mental needs, open in my lap, and my eyes on the prospects without. Thank heaven, thought I, that this institution was so commandingly placed that at least we can look out over the cast-iron wall which shuts us in. I was feeling very cooped up and present and like an orphan myself, so I decided that my own nervous system required fresh air and exercise and adventure. Straight before me ran that white ribbon of road that dips into the valley and up over the hills on the other side. Ever since I came I have longed to follow it to the top and find out what lies beyond those hills. Poor Judy, I dare say that very same longing enveloped your childhood. If any one of my little chicks ever stands by the window and looks across the valley to the hills and asks, What's over there? I shall telephone for a motor car. But today my chicks were all piously engaged with their little souls, I the only wonder at heart. I changed my silken Sunday gown for a homespun, planning meanwhile a means to get to the top of those hills. Then I went to the telephone and brazenly called up 505. Good afternoon, Mrs. McGurk, said I, very sweet. May I be speaking with Dr. McRae? Hold the wire, said she, very short. Afternoon, doctor, said I to him. Have ye, by chance, any dying patients who live on the top of the hills beyond? I have not, thank the Lord. Tis a pity, said I, disappointed. And what are ye after doing with yourself the day? I am reading The Origin of Species. Shut it up. It is not fit for Sunday. And tell me now, is your motor car oiled and ready to go? It is at your disposal. Are you wanting me to take some orphans for a ride? Just one who is suffering from a nervous system. She is taking a fixed idea that she must get to the top of the hills. My car is a grand climber. In fifteen minutes. Wait, said I. Bring with you a frying pan that's a decent size for two. There's nothing in my kitchen smaller than a cartwheel. And ask Mrs. McGurk, can you stay out for supper? So I packed in a basket a jar of bacon and some eggs and muffins and ginger cookies, with hot coffee in the thermos bottle, and was waiting on the steps when Sandy chucked up with his automobile and frying pan. We really had a beautiful adventure, and he enjoyed the sensation of running away exactly as much as I. Not once did I let him mention insanity. I made him look at the wide stretches of meadow and the lines of pollard willows 
back by billowing hills, and sniffed the air, and listened to the crawling crows, and the tinkle of cowbells, and the gurgling of the river. And we talked, oh, by a million things far removed from our asylum. I made him throw away the idea that he's a scientist, and pretend to be a boy. You would scarcely credit the assertion, but he succeeded, more or less. He did pull off one or two really boyish pranks. Sandy is not yet out of his thirties, and mercy, that is too old to be grown up. We camped on a bluff overlooking our view, gathered some driftwood, built a fire, and cooked the nicest supper, a sprinkling of burnt stick in our fried eggs, but Jacko's healthy. Then, when Sandy had finished his pipe, and the sun was setting in its wonted west, we packed up and coasted back home. He says it was the nicest afternoon he has had in years, and, poor deluded man of science, I actually believe it's true. His olive-green home is so uncomfortable and dreary and uninspiring that I don't wonder he drowns his troubles in books. Just as soon as I can find a nice, comfortable house-mother to put in charge, I'm going to plot for the dismissal of Maggie McGook, though I foresee that you'll be even harder than Sterry to pry from her moorings. Please don't draw the conclusion that I'm becoming unduly interested in our bad-tempered doctor, for I'm not. It's just that he leads such a comfortless life that I sometimes long to pat him on the head and tell him to cheer up. The world's full of sunshine, and some of it's for him. Just as I long to comfort my hundred and seven orphans, so much and no more. I'm sure that I had some real news to tell you, but it has completely gone out of my head. The rush of fresh air has made me sleepy. It's half past nine, and I bid you good night. S. P.S. Gordon Halleck has evaporated into thin air. Not a word for three weeks. No candy or stuffed animals or tokimentos of any description. What on earth do you suppose has become of that attentive young man? July 13th. Dearest Judy. Hark to the glad tidings. This being the 31st day of Punch's month, I telephoned to his two patronesses as nominated in the bond, to arrange for his return. I was met by an indignant refusal. Give up their sweet little volcano just as they are getting it trained not to belch forth fire? They are outraged that I can make such an ungrateful request. Punch has accepted their invitation to spend the summer. The dressmaking is still going on. You should hear the machines whir and the tongues clatter in the sewing room. Our most cowed, apathetic, spiritless little orphan cheers up and takes an interest in life when she hears that she is to possess three perfectly private dresses of her own, and each a different colour, chosen by herself. And you should see how it encourages their sewing abilities. Even the little ten-year-olds are bursting into seamstresses. I wish I could devise an equally effective way to make them take an interest in cooking. But our kitchen is extremely uneducative. You know how hampering it is to one's enthusiasm to have to prepare a bushel of potatoes at once. I think you've heard me mention the fact that I should like to divide up my kiddies into ten nice little families, with a nice comfortable house-mother over each. If we just had ten picturesque cottages to put them in, with flowers in the front yard, and rabbits, and kittens, and puppies, and chickens in the back, we should be a perfectly presentable institution, and wouldn't be ashamed to have these charity experts come visit us. Thursday I started this letter three days ago, was interrupted to talk to a potential philanthropist, fifty tickets to the circus, and have not had time to pick up my pen since. 
Betsy has been in Philadelphia for three days, being a bridesmaid for a miserable cousin. I hope that no more of her family are thinking of getting married, for it is most upsetting to the J.G.H. While there, she investigated a family who had applied for a child. Of course, we haven't a proper investigating plant, but once in a while, when a family drops right into our arms, we do like to put the business through. As a usual thing, we work with the state's Charities Aids Association. They have a lot of trained agents traveling around the state, keeping in touch with families who are willing to take children, and with asylums that have them to give. Since they are willing to work for us, there's no slightest use in our going to the expense of pendling our own babies. And I do want to place out as many as are available, for I firmly believe that a private home is the best thing for the child, provided, of course, that we are very fussy about the character of the homes we choose. I don't require rich foster parents, but I do require kind, loving, intelligent parents. This time I think Betsy has landed a gem of a family. The child is not yet delivered or the papers signed, and of course there is always danger that they may give a sudden flop and splash back into the water. Ask Jervis if he has ever heard of J. F. Brutland of Philadelphia. He seems to move in financial circles. The first I ever heard of him was a letter addressed to the Sept John Greer home, Dear Sir, a curt, typewritten, business-like letter from an awfully business-like lawyer, saying that his wife had determined to adopt a baby girl of attractive appearance and good health between the ages of two and three years. The child must be an orphan of American stock with unimpeachable heredity and no relatives to interfere. Could I furnish one as required and oblige? Yours truly, J. F. Bretland. By way of reference, he mentioned Bradstreet's. Did you ever hear of anything so funny? You'd think he was opening a charge account at a nursery and enclosing an order from our seed catalogue. We began our usual investigation by mailing a reference blank to a clergyman in Germantown where the JFBs reside. Does he own any property? Does he pay his bills? Is he kind to animals? Does he attend church? Does he quarrel with his wife? And a dozen other impertinent questions. We evidently picked the clergyman with a sense of humor. Instead of answering in laborious detail, he wrote up and down and across the sheet, I wish they'd adopt me. This looked promising so B. Kindred obligingly dashed out to Germantown as soon as the wedding breakfast was over. She's developing the most phenomenal detective instinct. In the course of a social call, she can absorb from the chairs and tables a family's entire moral history. She returned from Germantown, bursting with enthusiastic details. Mr. J. F. Bretland is a wealthy and influential citizen, cordially loved by his friends and deeply hated by his enemies discharged employees who do not hesitate to say that he's a hard man. He is a little shaky in his attendance at church, but his wife seems regular, and he gives money. She is a charming, kindly, cultivated gentlewoman, just out of a sanatorium after years of nervous prostration. The doctor says that what she needs is some strong interest in life, and advises adopting a child. She has always longed to do it, but her hard-husband has stubbornly refused. But finally, as always, it is the gentle, persistent wife who has triumphed, and hard husband has been forced to give in. Waiving his own natural preferences for a boy, he wrote, as above, the usual request for a blue-eyed girl. Mrs. Bretland, with a firm intention of taking a child, 
has been reading up for years, and there's no detail of infant dietetics that she does not know. She has a sunny nursery with a southwestern exposure already, and a closet full of surreptitiously gathered dolls. She had made the clothes for them herself. She showed them to Betsy with the greatest pride, so you can understand the necessity for a girl. She has just heard of an excellent English-trained nurse that she can secure, but she isn't too sure but that it would be better to start with a French nurse, so that the child can learn the language before her vocal cords are set. Also, she was extremely interested when she heard that Betsy was a college woman. She couldn't make up her mind whether to send the baby to college or not. What was Betsy's honest opinion? If the child were Betsy's own daughter, would Betsy send her to college? All this would be funny if it weren't so pathetic. But really, I can't get away from the picture of that poor, lonely woman sewing those doll clothes for the little unknown girl that she wasn't sure she could have. She lost her own two babies years ago. Or rather, she never had them. They were never alive. You can see what a good home it's going to be. There's lots of love waiting for the little mite, and that is better than all the wealth which, in this case, goes along. But the problem now is to find the child, and that isn't easy. The J. F. Bretlands are so abominable explicit in their requirements. I have just the baby boy to give them, but with that closet full of dolls he is impossible. Little Florence won't do. Montanasia's parent living. I've a wide variety of foreigners with liquid brown eyes. Won't do at all. Mrs. Bradland is a blonde, and daughter must resemble her. I have several sweet little mites with unspeakable heredity, but the Bradlands want six generations of church-attending grandparents, with a colonial governor at the top. Also, I have a darling little curly-headed girl, and curls are getting rarer and rarer, but illegitimate and that seems to be an unsurmountable barrier in the eyes of adopting parents, though, as a matter of fact, it makes no slightest difference in the child. However, she won't do. The Bradlands hold out sternly for a marriage certificate. There remains just one child out of all these 107 that appears available. Our little Sophie's father and mother were killed in a railroad accident, and the only reason she wasn't killed was because they had just left her in a hospital to get an abscess cut out of her throat. She comes from good, common American stock, irreproachable and uninteresting in every way. She is a washed-out, spiritless, whiny little thing. The doctor has been pouring her full of his favorite cod liver oil and spinach, but he can't get any cheerfulness into her. However, individual love and care does accomplish wonders in institution children, and she may bloom into something rare and beautiful, after a few months' transplanting. So I yesterday wrote a glowing account of her immaculate family history to J. F. Bretland, offering to deliver her in Germantown. This morning I received a telegram from J. F. B. Not at all. He does not propose to buy any daughter sight unseen. He will come and inspect the child in person at three o'clock on Wednesday next. Oh dear, if you shouldn't like her! We are now bending all our energies towards enhancing that child's beauty, like a pup bound for a dog show. Do you think it would be awfully immoral if I rouged her cheeks a suspicion? She's too young to pick up the habit. Heavens, what a letter! A million pages written without a break. You can see where my heart is. I'm as excited over little Sophie's settling in life as though she were my own darling daughter. Respectful regards to the President. Sal McBee
End of part 15